Welcome to another episode of Fishing for Problems. I'm your host, Matt Schneidman. Last night, my wife and I received an email from my daughter's preschool informing us of urgent staffing issues in her classroom. The head of the school set up a Zoom meeting. That classroom has two lead teachers, and we learned that both are leaving the school next week, leaving the classroom in quite a bind. This is not the first time this has happened since the start of the school year. My daughter is particularly close with one of the teachers, so this will be hard for her. I wish I could say that I was surprised, but I'm not. I wish I could say that I was disappointed, but I get it. I understand their decisions. It's a hard time to be a teacher. We're going to focus more on K-12, but this story is, I think, in a lot of ways representative of the challenges the teaching profession is facing. Teacher turnover has been part of the teaching profession since its inception. Some might call it a feature, others a bug. However you view it, it's a reality that we face. I'm concerned that we are about to experience a mass exodus out of the profession. That, of course, remains to be seen, but this is a topic that is top of mind. And who better to talk to about this topic than Dr. Richard Ingersoll. Dr. Ingersoll is a professor of education and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School for Education and is one of, if not the leading expert on teacher turnover in the K-12 space. I am privileged to have Dr. Ingersoll on the podcast. Dr. Ingersoll, welcome to Fishing for Problems. Thanks for having me, Matt. So first question, I've provided a short introduction. Can you please tell the listeners a bit about yourself, your history, your research interests, and what you're working on right now? Yes, I'm a professor of education and sociology at University of Pennsylvania, and I originally was a high school teacher, first in Canada and then in the United States, near here. I grew up in the state of Delaware. And I lived in Canada for a number of years. I moved and I taught school and I, that's a whole story. I won't go into the details of how that happened. I'd gone to college in University of California and ended up in Western Canada. And then I moved back to the States. This is quite a while ago and taught school. And when I moved back, I had a real comeuppance. The job was very different. Putting aside students for a minute, just the job itself was very different than what I experienced in Canada. And this is both public and private schools. And the pay was lower. That wasn't the main thing. I'm talking about uh, the stresses of the job, the amount of conflict, the amount of problems with student behavior. That was 50% of your job. This was high school. This was not affluent, but this was not an inner city, stereotypical, tough high school. Half your job was just dealing with misbehavior on a daily basis. And one of the things that struck me was how little voice teachers had in the running of things. T- teachers are often blamed for what happens in schools, but teachers actually aren't calling the shots at all. And anyhow, I had all these questions like, well, is it just that I ended up at a bad school or what's it like elsewhere? And eventually I quit and went and got a PhD in sociology, took a lot of courses in the business uh, school to sort of learn about management and organizations and research on them. And have been trying to apply all that learning to understand the problems of the teaching force and the teaching occupation ever since. So that's my background. And I do research on teacher shortages and teacher turnover and the problems of underqualified teachers and the problems of beginning teachers and the whole reform movement that tries to provide support. Often the term induction is used for beginning teachers to try to help them stick around I mentioned this earlier, we have this, we generated this statistic a couple decades ago that between 40 and 50% of those who go into teaching are gone within five years. And so all those kinds of things, to what extent is or is not teaching a profession that can be compared to, for instance, professors or architects or engineers or lawyers or doctors. I do a lot of work on changes and trends in the demographics of the teaching force. It turns out K through 12 teaching is one of the largest workforces in the country. It's undergoing tremendous and who does it and how long they stick around, et cetera. And no one's really on top of these. They will be because there's huge implications. So those are the kinds of things I do research on. And I would love later on to talk about to what extent teaching is a profession. I'm interested in how you think teaching is unique from from other occupations. So I'm going to put a pin in that. 
I, I am well-versed in your research. Turnover has been an interest of mine for quite some time, as I, like you, am someone who left the profession. Uh, I'm in ed tech, corporate education, whatever you want to call it. I still consider myself a lifelong educator and would not be surprised if I return to the classroom at some time in the next 10 years, but I'm not there right now. I haven't been since 2015. I don't know what it's like to be a teacher um, uh, during COVID. Uh, I left the profession despite loving my work. I loved working with kids. I loved my colleagues, uh, the sense of collaboration. I loved the shared sense of a common vision. There were things I didn't enjoy about teaching, but that's any job, but I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I needed a break. Turnover is a problem that predates COVID. And I wanted to have you on the podcast to shed light on that problem. Before digging into your research in detail, can we define a few terms for our listeners and for you and me as well, so that we're speaking the same language? Um, those terms are teacher turnover, teacher migration, teacher attrition, and any other terms that you think might be significant? Because turnover doesn't necessarily just mean leaving the profession. It could be moving from one school to another. So would love to uh, sort of set the stage a little bit um, and, uh, and define some key terms um, for, uh, yeah, for our listeners. Good point. Good point. And these terms are often used in different ways, and that leads to confusion. Uh, the way I define it, and, and this is not unique to me, is that all the departures of teachers out of schools, we call that turnover as a whole. There's different types. There's different components to these flows of teachers out of buildings. There's those quitting the occupation altogether. We often call them leavers for attrition. There's those who are moving to other schools, even within the same school district or maybe across state lines or maybe from public to private or private to public. We call those movers or migration. And the total are departures. And that includes everyone, whether they're retiring, whether they're you know, moving to another state because their spouse's job changed, or whether all kinds of different reasons, both good and bad. And one of the things that needs to be recognized right up front is that not all flows of teachers out of schools, not all turnover is bad by any means. First of all, there's a certain inevitability. Every, Lots of us change our occupations, change our jobs, change our organizations. So there's a certain amount of that which is just normal. And But furthermore, not all turnover is bad in the sense that some people shouldn't be teachers. We'd like them to move on to greener pastures. And, and of course, we'd like uh, new blood to come in sometimes. And of course, this is recognized amongst those who study employee turnover in general. That some degree of employee separations are normal and even beneficial in any organization. On the other hand, there's a general recognition that high levels of employee turnover are not cost-free. And there's all kinds of costs. There's a financial cost of just recruiting and uh, onboarding and placing people. Uh, there's the disruption to the process if people leave, particularly the example you gave where they're leaving in the middle of the school year. By the way, that's unusual. Turnover in teaching usually happens in the summer, but there's been, it seems to be this growing trend towards people just saying, I'm not going to wait to the end of the year. I'm, I'm getting out or I'm going to move to another school or whatever. So the types of turnover are mixed and whether it's good and bad is mixed. We do know from, the, from our research that teaching has relatively high turnover compared to many other different occupations and professions. It's not the highest, but it's quite high. And the other thing we know is that talking about teacher turnover as a whole overlooks the fact that there's huge differences in the levels of teacher turnover across different types of schools. And so you can't really talk about it in the aggregate, you need to break it down to disaggregate it and look at it. And you'll have, you'll have, um, you know, a quarter of the schools in the country that are losing 25% of their teachers year in, year out. And on the other hand, you'll have a quarter that lose le less than 10% a year. So, you know, it varies dramatically. And so the costs are not equally borne by schools. So if I uh, understand you correctly, we can think about teacher turnover as this umbrella term of any teacher that leaves a school, they could leave for another school, they could leave the profession um, entirely to pursue another occupation, uh, or they could 
retire from the profession. Um, so those are those are a couple uh, options when we think about teacher turnover. Is that correct? That is correct. And there is a camp out there that doesn't want to pay attention to the movers. Mm -hmm. They'll say, well, look, they're not a net loss to the system. They're, they're still in the school system. They're just working in a different school. So that's not really a problem. We don't need to pay attention to them. And of course, from a system level viewpoint in terms of shortages, there's some truth to that. However, it doesn't do that principle any good to say, oh, well, they're moving to another school 15 minutes away. I mean, they're part of that principal staffing problem. We also, our research has shown is that the flows out of buildings between schools are what we call asymmetric. Mm -hmm. So to give you an example, across the nation, the flow of teachers from low income to affluent schools is about four times what it is in reverse. So in Philadelphia, there's quite a flow at the end of every given year of teachers from Philadelphia school district out to more affluent school districts. There's very little flow the other direction. So there's good reasons to pay attention to both the movers and the leaders. Yeah, moving from Philadelphia to Wilson school district, something like that, one of the neighboring. I used to do a lot of work uh, in, the, in the Philadelphia area. So I know, know those school districts. Shout out to Chris McCaffrey at Wilson school district. So uh, a couple things there, uh, regardless of good teacher or bad teacher leaving, there is a not insignificant financial cost to the school um, needing to hire another teacher, uh, hopefully in, uh, in that teacher's place. So um, even if it is what we might call a bad teacher leaving, um, there is a cost, enough for a cost to, uh, to that teacher leaving. The other thing, and I, I don't wanna spend actually any time here, but one, one thing that I am curious about, and we won't, we won't know the data for a number of years, is part of me thinks that uh, the um, disproportionate rates of teacher turnover between low-income schools and uh, high-income schools, that COVID is uh, leveling the playing field there, that regardless of what kind of school you're teaching at, um, teaching in general is just challenging this year. And uh, there are going to be similar levels of teachers leaving, regardless of what kind of school they're at. Of course, that remains to be seen, but uh, that is a possible prediction that, uh, that I am making. And I'm curious to see, again, how that bears out in the data. You know, that's a very good point. I've wondered about that myself. Has COVID sort of been a leveling factor in, in, in these different rates of turnover between types of schools. And that it could be the case. I simply don't know, but the stresses are out there, the whole remote versus in-person and gosh, yeah, it's, it's become difficult. So returning to a point that you made about what extent is teaching a profession, I'm not sure what angle I wanna take with this. I'm curious how you think teaching is different from other professions, both pre-COVID and post-March, 2020. Uh, to provide a bit of context, I see teachers struggling. I believe they have every reason to be frustrated with the circumstances they're being asked to navigate. But one could imagine someone responding with the refrain, get in line, it's a pandemic, we're all struggling. And I hear that. And I'm going to respond not with an and, and, but with a but. The profession of teaching has a unique societal role. And I think its role has created a unique experience for teachers. But I will also say that a few years ago, I was provided a statistic that I think engineers in the tech space stay at a company for an average of something like 1.2 or 1.4 years. So it's not as if turnover is unique to education. Um, not sure we'll keep this thread in the final edit, but I do want to put it out there uh, just to hear your thoughts on how you perceive teaching to be different, how you perceive it to be the same as other professions. Well, my field is sociology, and in sociology, there's a lot of study of the status, the standing, the prestige of different lines of work. And the term profession is reserved for those which are these highly respected, usually better paid lines of work that involve quite a bit of training and preparation and selectivity to get into and so the traditional established professions are law, medicine, academia, engineering, accounting, dentistry, et cetera. 
And so from that viewpoint, there's a bunch of characteristics that distinguish professions from other lines of work. So that's the social scientific um, perspective on those terms. And from that perspective, teaching is not a profession. Uh, it's, it's not that sociologists wouldn't want it to be a profession. I'd love to see it upgraded, but it's not. It simply doesn't require the training and preparation. It's not nearly as selective. It doesn't pay as much. It, I mean, one of the hallmarks of professions is that the professionals are the experts and they have a lot of voice in the decision-making in the setting and teachers don't have that. And so there's all kinds of char job characteristics which, which point that teaching is not one of those professions. It maybe could be, it maybe should be. And of course, for a century, it's been the aspiration of teachers to become professionalized and to be viewed uh, in a more like other tradi like traditional professions. This of course varies across the world. There's some nations where teaching is far more highly respected and better paid and better training and all that, you know, Finland and Singapore and Korea, et cetera. So from that viewpoint, it's sort of a would be profession, uh, but it's not, it doesn't have that standing. And just on a personal level, when I went from high school teacher to being a college professor, you know, it's like night to day. Uh, I mean, just the whole way people treat you, the stature, the pay, the respect, the job conditions, on and on and on. It's really quite striking, in my case, to go from something that's not really treated as a respected profession to something that is. And, you know, I'd read all about that, but it was quite striking to, to just have that. All of a sudden, it's as if you're a better, more superior, more respectable person. Well, that's the same person, you know. So I just happen to have a different job title. So that's a, that's a social scientific take on being a profession. And my own view is that we could solve a whole lot of the problems which plague K through 12 teaching if we could professionalize it. It's sort of a simple answer that you know, well-respected, well-paid professions, they don't suffer from shortages. You know, they don't, they don't assign people to do work that doesn't fit their background. They, have a, they give their practitioners a lot of voice. They give them support. They give them autonomy. They give them resources. They give them time to do the job. You know, it's not that there's not growing problems with being a physician, for instance. I mean, that's well docu documented in the kind of stresses and you know the, the rush to see more patients, all these types of things. The fact that doctors in many ways are not calling the shots are not the key people making the decisions as they were 20, 30 years ago. All that's true. In fact, some people have been talking about the decrease in the professional status of, of physicians across the country. But you know, just there's this huge gap in my experience and in the in the research between established professions and teaching. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I would just say anybody interested in the American system versus uh, other, uh, other systems throughout the world uh, could listen to my conversation with Mark Tucker or read his book, Leading High Performance School Systems, because you get a good um, analysis of uh, a comparative analysis of um, the American public schooling system versus others. Um, you uh, used three words, status, standing, and prestige at the beginning of that previous response. And those are three words that I think few teachers feel like they, they have. Uh, and so from that sociological perspective, I think it's quite easy uh, to imagine that teachers do not, uh, are not viewed as, as professionals. And there's an interesting disconnect in the, uh, I don't know if it's the American zeitgeist, whatever it is, in American society around the idea of teachers, the way that we think about them and the way that they are actually treated in practice, this idea of teaching being this noble profession. Um, and yet, as you just alluded to, in practice, teachers have little status, little standing, little prestige, and they are not paid particularly well. And this this was something that I spoke with um, Dr. Pam Grossman about a little bit 
Uh, and it's something that it's another area that I'm I'm interested in, uh, particularly because there are some strong critiques around raising teacher pay um, and the potential consequences of that leading to increased student achievement. And you look at comparative analysis across states and how New York spends, you know, something like twenty thousand uh, dollars per student. A state like Utah spends something like eight thousand dollars, and you're not seeing huge differences in uh, sort of those metrics that we use for student achievement. And yet, uh, I think those critiques are misplaced because they put a ceiling on how much we might pay teachers. And I think we need to get rid of that ceiling. And instead of you know spending $20,000 per student, maybe we spend 50. Um, and that might make a huge difference if the remaining money goes to, goes to teachers. Uh, but um, I'll save that for, for another conversation. Um, but um, I do think uh, that those three, those three terms, status, standing, and prestige are so important when thinking about just a daily experience of what it's like to, to be an educator and also how fundamental those three things are to one's identity and when you're not feeling that. Um, and in, in, uh, in a 2011 paper that, um, that Boyd and Grossman and others published, um, there were a couple statistics saying that former teachers felt uh, you know, much, uh, or they were more frequently praised in their new professions than they were in their previous professions, more recognized for the work they did. And um, I fortunately was at a school where I felt like I was constantly being recognized for the hard work that I am doing, but I know from a lot of teacher friends, that that's not the case. And, uh, you know, teachers putting in 50, 60 plus hour weeks, um, feeling like they're not getting recognized as much as what they might be doing in a 40 hour a week job is, uh, I think nothing less than, than a tragedy. Yeah, the, all that is true. And of course, it's not the only line of work which isn't given sufficient respect. Yep. But on the other hand, it's such an important thing. I mean, everyone, your point, there's this ambiguity. Everyone agrees that teachers are important and they're hugely influential on the next generation, on all of us. Uh, you know, and it's sort of a special type of job. On the other hand, you get this funny ambivalence. I remember when I was a high school teacher, you'd be at some party and people say, oh, what do you do? And you say, you're a teacher. And they go, oh, gosh, you know, that's such important work. And then they'd say, but you seem like a smart guy. Why the hell are you doing that? You know, this it's such a crummy job sort of thing. And there's this contradiction in the way our culture views this line of work. And, you know, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, at my university, we don't even have an undergraduate major in education. The, our, ours is a private, very expensive university. There's not any undergraduates. There's very few that want to major in that. They want to become, you know, professionals lawyers, doctors, dentists, accountants, et cetera. So, you know, it's, <laughs> anyhow, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, I think back to my early 20s, I started out as an elementary school teacher and I'd tell people that I was an elementary school teacher and they'd say, oh, that's so cute. What are, what are you planning to do after you teach elementary school? And I was doing a training a couple of days ago for a, K, uh, for a three, six school. And it was me and it was uh, about 20 other women in the space, not one male teacher. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was a co-ed school. And, uh, you know, boys and girls just seeing, you know, women as uh, as their teachers and not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but um, I do think that even more representation in the space might help, but there's a reason why uh, there are fewer men in the space. Yeah, this is one of those demographics we've studied that when the public school system was set up, teaching was quite quickly made into a into women's work, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. A bunch of reasons. You could you could pay less than to men. However, uh, maybe thirty years ago, when all kinds of male-dominated lines of work were op began opening to women, there was this fear: oh, teaching's no longer going to have this captive labor supply. The opposite has happened. Over the last 30 years, the percentage of teachers that are female has actually increased. 
even though all these other things are opening up. I mean, the law school, the medical school at my university now are 50-50 male-female in terms of students. But education, teaching in particular, has become even more female. So it's, it's interesting. And why that is is a whole question, and it's something we've been, we've been studying. And uh, so it's kind of, it's relentlessly remaining, quote unquote, women's work. Yeah, I mean, teaching as a profession, I like using the word inertia. Um, it is just this immovable object. And um, yeah, and that's that's the way it's been. It's the way uh, it feels like it continues to be. Uh, and uh, I love having conversations about how to diversify the workforce. But when you look at it, it's, uh, it's a lot of white women who are doing the job. Yes. Well, that's another interesting trend, uh, the race, ethnicity. And of course, you know, this is out there that this complaint that the teaching force doesn't look like America mm -hmm. and that it's not very diverse. And this is something we've also studied in detail. And that is certainly true. There is a, there is a hidden success story that actually the numbers and percentages of teachers that are from underrepresented racial ethnic groups has gone up a whole lot over the last 30 years. This is something of an unrecognized victory. No, we don't have parity, but it's gone up. And it's interesting because it's gone up in spite of the fact that teachers from underrepresented groups have higher turnover rates, higher mm -hmm. rates. So, you know, there is sort of a, a success story that's been muted and blunted there, but that's probably another talk. Yes, that's just steady. Well, so... Uh maybe not necessarily irrelevant to what we're going to get into next, but let's get into your, your research. Um, you have a, a seminal paper on turnover published in 2001 titled Teacher Turnover and Teacher Shortages, an Organizational Analysis. Um, org theory is uh, a particular passion of, of mine. My first org theory course that I took in my doctoral program honestly changed my life. Um, you reference the extant research in the space prior to the paper's publication, and you take that research in a different direction. So uh, for folks who aren't familiar with the research pre-2001 and your research, can you describe um, the research on that topic that came before your paper and what was different about your research and your findings? Yes. Teacher shortages are not new at all. If you read sort of history of our school system, they've been around this kind of perennial teacher shortage crises for the last century. And the conventional wisdom has been that the supply has been insufficient. That is the production of new teachers hasn't kept up with student enrollment increases or teacher retirement increases. And hence we have these shortages. And I bought all that too. And I started doing research and looked carefully at the data and it just didn't add up. And what I discovered was that we actually produce enough qualified teachers, even in mathematics and science, to cover student enrollment increases, to cover teacher retirement increases, which, which we have been having since, since World War II, uh, the post-war period. But what we don't produce enough is to cover the high levels of pre-retirement voluntary departures. It's turnover is really the issue. And so it meant that the, the conventional solutions, which were uh, dozens of interesting teacher recruitment initiatives at district level, state level, federal level, let's figure out ways of bringing more people in. Let's have alternative routes. Let's recruit overseas. Let's have signing bonuses. All those things might be fine things to do, but none of them would solve the problem. The, the problem wasn't that we make too many make too few, it's that we lose too many. And so the solution couldn't be just to bring in more, we actually have to improve retention. So that was a big finding I had, and it went against the conventional wisdom. And, you know, it's interesting, there was a lesson there, if you do research that shows up the conventional wisdom, you will get hit. And I would get savage critiques from all different sides. Uh, that this was wrong, that was wrong. I mean, some, sometimes quite sort of threatening things. I mean, you know, we're going to expose you or, 
well, here's the data. Uh, I mean, you know, I was sort of doing rigorous research with the data, you know, follow the data was the way I was trained when I did my PhD program, follow the data and see where it goes. It, it goes in interesting places. I mean, you have your preconceptions, try to put them to the side. And so that was interesting. Now, in, this, in the subsequent couple decades, this idea that teacher turnover is an important part and it's part of shortages and it's high and it's worth considering, that's, that's grown. There's far more understanding and recognition on that whole topic. Than when I started, so I, I don't feel so lonely anymore. Well, so what does it what does it mean to examine turnover at the organizational level? And you know, in your research, you allude to um, looking at turnover as a function of teachers versus as a function of schools. Can you explain the differences uh, there? And also, let's dig into some of the organizational qualities that impact turnover. Absolutely. So. In that early work, along with finding that turnover is the big driver behind the so-called shortages, the second thing was to find out what's the driver behind turnover. And most of the research before then had all been about um, what we call teacher effects. Which types of teachers are more or less likely to part their schools? Is it male or female? Is it elementary, secondary? Uh, is it by you know, their educational levels, whatever? And what my finding was is that a lot of this is driven by the workplaces and the characteristics of the workplaces above and beyond the characteristics of the teachers. There are some differences between, for instance, between uh, uh, non-white and white teachers, there's distinct differences in the level of turnover, but the big differences are driven by the job conditions, the organizational conditions. And so that's back to your question. That's what I meant by an organizational analysis. Let's look at the characteristics of the organizations in which these people are employed, that those make a very, very big difference, difference on a lot of things, but in this case, a difference in whether they're gonna stay or leave. And that was really borne out. And we showed that the bulk of, of teacher turnover is driven by these job characteristics. And we, of course, we started to bear down, well, which things in particular are most correlated with the decision to stay or leave? And what are, what are those characteristics? Interestingly enough, salary and benefits are not the main factors. They play a role, of course. If, if your job doesn't pay you very much, you're going to be more likely to either go to another organization, in this case, another school, or get out altogether. But no, it was these other types of things, and several of them always come to the top. One of them is the issue of voice. How much say did the teachers have into the key decisions in the building that impact their jobs? No, it's decision-making input. And this is one of the hallmarks of those established professions, respected professions that we talked about earlier, that you know, the professionals are the experts and they have a lot of input, whether it's lawyers in the law firm or whether it's accountants in their firm or whether it's physicians, professors. We have, we have there's all kinds of things we have a huge amount of decision-making input into in higher ed that as a high school teacher, I never had any input into. So, so there's the voice issue. Another issue is how much support is provided for the beginning teachers. It turns out that there are big differences in the turnover rates amongst different types of teachers and amongst the highest are, are beginners. Beginners, and, we, and I mentioned this earlier, we generated the statistic a couple decades ago that between 40 and 50% of those that go into teaching are gone within five years. And that still holds up with more recent data. And so there's been a growing recognition of this that gosh, we're losing all these people before they have a chance to, to get good at it. And there's been a growth in these support programs. They're often called induction. Uh, one of the key components is to have a mentor, a senior teacher assigned to the beginning teachers to help them learn the ropes and survive and then hopefully succeed. And uh, those types of programs. So, so that's another big factor. If there's good support programs in place, and that's an, what I'm calling an organizational condition. That's something where the the management, district or school level management, 
or the state sets that up, it costs money. Then you improve the retention of teachers. So those are two things, the voice issue and the support issue, particularly for beginners. A third one, and this is related to the voice, is how much autonomy and discretion do I have in my classroom with my students you know, teaching a particular course? And particularly in large urban school districts with accountability, we've had a shrinking autonomy. You know, the most extreme case is we're gonna have all the 10th grade math teachers in our school district. We want them on the same page of the same text, teaching to the same test in the same week. And look, there's something to be said for consistency. All the students are getting a similar curriculum. That, that makes sense in some ways. On the other hand, in this industry, quote unquote, uh, the customers, they vary. Kids vary dramatically and how they learn varies. And so this is one of these lines of work where research for decades has shown that the practitioners need to be given some leeway, some discretion to make it work. You can't just have a one size fits all imposition of a certain package, a certain curriculum. Uh, you know, there, there's something attractive about that. Let's just have the, let's figure out the one best way and then let's do it and let's see all the teachers do it. And, you know, there's something attractive about that. Let's, let's use science and figure out the very best way to teach reading. And then by gum, let's see that everyone does it that way. I wish we could do that. I wish there was a silver bullet. I wish there was one best way, but it turns out kids vary. They vary in how they learn reading, for instance. And there's this thing called the reading wars about how best to do it. And I, I'm sure there's some approaches that are better than others. But the point is that teachers, this is nothing new, would like some autonomy, some discretion, some leeway. Look, you can hold me accountable, but don't micromanage me. Don't tell me how to get from A to B. Give me some say in that. Treat me like a professional. That is a that is a reoccurring widespread sort of complaint and argument, the autonomy issue. So, you know, these are the kinds of working conditions that are highly correlated with teachers' decisions whether to stay or to leave. And note that these are all less expensive than raising salaries. Well, providing support programs, that costs some money, but less expensive, it's not that they'd be easy to do, but some of these prescriptions for improving teacher retention are far more costly than others. And, you know, it takes a certain will. And I'm very attracted to these movements to give teachers more input into decision-making in the building, more collective collegial model of decision-making. And there's, there's schools out there run on that basis. There's a whole movement of what's called teacher-run schools, mostly in the Midwest. These are public schools. And they model themselves after, after law partnerships where the lawyers, the firm's theirs. They run it, they own it, they decide things, and they're accountable. You know, if they don't get business, they go out of business. And so there's this growing, small but growing movement of teacher-run schools. That's sort of the most professional model I've ever seen. But getting back to your question, sort of certain working conditions, organizational conditions, the data show are very strongly correlated with turnover. Yeah, part of me is uh, attracted, very attracted to the idea of opening up my own school here in the, the Portland area. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, doubtful that I will ever uh, go through with it, but uh, truly establishing that teacher-run school. Um, I want to, I want to just make a comment on salaries because I. I found it interesting, uh, surprising when I first saw in your research and other research that salaries didn't contribute, um, you know, for teacher reports to at least not as much as other um, yes. other factors. Part of me thinks that uh, it's a lack of imagination among teachers in the sense that uh, if you say, you know, an extra 10 grand a year, is that going to make me stay? Probably not. Is an extra 100 grand a year? going to make me stay? Maybe, maybe it will. Um, and you say, wow, hundred grand is a lot of money. But uh, I think my first uh, salary um, 
or not my first salary, but a salary at a charter school I taught at was $48,000 per year. And I was working, again, 100 hour weeks. Um, and uh, I was getting amazing results, but uh, I <laughs> could have used a little bit, a little bit more money. Um, I also want to just quickly um, make a comment too on that idea of shrinking autonomy, because I would guess that people outside of the profession might say, is that honestly the case that you need to be, you know, on this page at this specific time? And yes, that is the case. I have been um, in school districts where uh, if an administrator came into that room, their expectation was that you were on a specific page, um, you know, working on a specific problem, depending on the specific time of day. And I also have, uh, have experienced, um, not personally, but heard from teachers who were asked to take down reading posters because uh, they were using something, I think it was from Reader's Workshop, when their district was using another curriculum. And these were self-made posters. They weren't posters that had been sent to them by Reader's Workshop, but they said that's not a curriculum, so you gotta gotta take it down, even though they might be helping your students do, you know, whatever it is that they're doing in the classroom a little bit better. Well, you're right. Now it varies to be sure, but certainly there's cases just as you described where it's almost lockstep. Mm -hmm. And you can see the, the rationale, which is, look, we don't want, if a student moves from building Y next, we don't want the 10th grade math to be a completely different animal. Okay, we, we get that. But, you know, this is one of these lines of work again, where the raw material or the customers, whatever metaphor you want to use, varies dramatically. It's, it's not like when engineers make a bridge, I know there's variations in the materials and whatnot, but there's general rules, there's algorithms, there's best practices. And yes, we have a whole movement to figure out the best practices in teaching for this and that. But on the other hand, there's this longstanding recognition, this goes back more than half a century, that Gosh, you got to give some leeway to the people on the ground because kids vary a lot and different things work for different types of students. And there's different types of communities and expectations, et cetera. And so you can't just micromanage. That's sort of the argument. And the other one is let's micromanage. So districts and schools vary dramatically on this. With accountability, we've seen, I mentioned the sort of some shrinking, particularly in some large urban districts. And, you know, this is, uh, this is, so I mentioned that teachers from underrepresented racial ethnic groups have higher teachers than do white teachers, uh, higher turnover than do white teachers. And we've drilled down carefully, what is it? What, what's behind those higher turnover rates? Autonomy is the, is the leading correlate. You know, you know, I don't have enough discretion in my classroom. That, that's so interesting. Driving out black teachers, for instance. So here we have all these recruitment initiatives, say to bring in black teachers, Asian teachers, Hispanic teachers. And then we have a school, we have organizational conditions which drive, which drive them back out. I mean, there's something self-defeating going on. There. Yeah, I mean, there's, oh my gosh, so much to unpack there. Uh, and a lot of racial, uh, you know, conversations to have there too. Um, I mean, when you look at some high poverty schools, many of which are low performing, what happens to those schools during times of increased accountability? Sometimes they get rid of all the staff. And for those who aren't aware of these situations, when I say all the staff, I mean everyone, cleaning house, new group of teachers, new group of administrators. Um, other times schools get put on what might be described as probationary status, which in most cases means less freedom and flexibility to run the school as they would like. Um, schools that are interested in, uh, schools or districts, organizations that are interested in equity um, that have, let's say, predominantly uh, white administrators uh, trying to get more um, teachers of color in their schools, but then establishing these uh, strict guidelines um, for how they can teach rather than letting teachers connect with their students in the ways that they can. Um, these are all these are all problems that, um, yeah, that we need to need to consider. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have 
One more question around kind of policy implications for all of this, and then maybe a couple minutes on uh, the current situation um, during COVID. So what's been done since 2001 um, and any additional research that you've um, conducted to address what your research suggests are the primary causes of turnover? What are the policy implications of your research and actually, you know, steps that um, schools, districts have done to try to put some of those implications into practice, either successfully or unsuccessfully? Well, the conventional wisdom, as I mentioned, was that we, we had these demographic changes, student enrollment increases, which we've had off and on since, since the end of World War II. And, you know, the conventional prescription was to produce more teachers and to have more recruitment. And uh, sometimes this would be in counterproductive ways. And, you know, the, I mean, one whole approach is to lower, lower the bar, widen the gate. Uh, and many states have done this over the decades. Look, we have these shortages, we're desperate. We gotta make it easier for people to get into this line of work. And uh, let's have alternative routes in. Let's do this, let's do that. You know, let's make licensing of teachers. Um, well, let me turn that off. Um, uh, Let's, you know, let's make it easier to get in. And it turns out easier in, easier out. It doesn't solve the problem. And so that's one thing that hasn't worked. What does work, the data show, is to improve the job conditions. Some of these cost more money than others. And, you know, the, the, the logic is simple. If if we wanna get rid of these shortages, we need to reduce teacher turnover. And to do that, well, if we, wanna, if we wanna improve student learning and achievement and growth, we need to ensure there's a qualified teacher in every classroom. To do that, we need to diminish shortages. To do that, we need to diminish teacher turnover. To do that, we need to make it a more attractive job. I mean, that's sort of the, not to be oversimple, that's kind of the logic here. And so the policy implication is what can we do and what's the price tag? Because when you talk to legislators, they have to ask you the price tag and it's a very legitimate question. <laughs> Professor Ingersoll, tell me two things. And by the way, tell me two things that don't cost, that aren't gonna break the bank. And you know, two things we can do. And so and I'm, I'm not really totally, entirely being facetious. So, you know, what to improve in that job to improve retention. And I mentioned a couple of things, the whole, you know, how we manage the collective decision-making, the autonomy thing, the support for beginning teachers. So those are the policy implications. And, you know, it's very easy and attractive to, instead of proving the job, let's just make it easier to get into the job. Or let's do signing bonuses. I know Massachusetts, this is now a decade and a half ago, I think, sort of had this famous experiment where they decided to have signing bonuses to bring in new teachers. And, you know, they put a little caveat on there that you had to stick around for two years or something. So the two years were up and a whole lot of these people quit. They took the bonus and ran. And you're back to square one. It didn't really work. You need to get the root of the problem, which is how attractive is that workplace? How well is it managed? And Schools vary. I'm not trying to say all school leadership is bad. No, that's, that's actually, that's the point. It varies dramatically. Leadership matters and how schools are run and set up matter. And uh, gosh, you know, a well-run building is a place, even if it's in a very low, low income, tough area, school district, it can have good retention because it becomes a, a well-run workplace where you know, management's on top of things and teachers are part of the decision-making and the problem solving. You know, you have a problem that arises. One approach is the principal and the vice principal get together, make a decision and then send out a memo. This is what's gonna happen. Well, seven heads are better than one. The teachers actually might have some thoughtful things to say about how to, how to deal with this problem. So, you know, now, of course, 
you know, not all teachers want to be involved with decision making, particularly beginners don't. But when it comes to real problems, teachers do want to have a voice. In other words, when you decided to leave, and I think you were saying it wasn't that you weren't respected, but there was other things there. Let's suppose they had said, listen, before you leave, what, what would be your thoughts on how to fix this? Can we have something that's not window dressing? Can we set up a committee? Can we have a hearing? Can we get together and make some changes? I don't know if that would have you know, enticed you to stick around, but you know, there's a classic book in political science called Exit, Voice, or Loyalty by Albert Hirschman, published decades ago. So there's problems in an organization and there's three choices for employees. Okay, there's loyalty, you stick around and you go along with things even though you may not like them. There's voice, you, you speak up, you try to change them, or there's exit. And he, it's a brilliant book and he goes into a lot like under what conditions do employees more, like Leslie, like more or less likely to take one of these three options. And in teaching a lot of times it's exit. You know, what about voice? Okay, we have problems and they're driving out people. And you know, Matt, I caught wind that you're thinking about leaving. <laughs> What would it take? You know, if you were king for the day, Matt, what would it take to change things around that you might consider staying, you know, that kind of thing? And, you know, I mean, some districts have now started to implement exit interviews, something that's very common in corporate sector. You know, someone is left, in this case, they've maybe already decided, and you have an exit interview, and obviously you have to promise anonymity and confidentiality because, you know, if they need a letter of recommendation, they're maybe not going to be truthful. But you know, why did you decide to depart the school, the organization? And is there anything that if it was different that you maybe would have decided to stay? Yeah, exit interviews I find problematic because I find that they mostly serve a token um, purpose as opposed to an actual purpose. Yes. But yes, absolutely. Um, they, 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 you know, can serve a great purpose if used. If, if they're used authentically. By the yeah. way, for decision making. I mean, yeah. the classic thing is some committee of teachers is called together to advise the principal, to advise the school district. And later they find out the decision was made six months ago. Yeah. This, is, this is sort of a charade. Mm -hmm. It actually is worse than doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you said easier in, easier out. I think anybody uh, who uh, had any knowledge of the profession could tell you that that wasn't going. Or sorry, easier in. Um, Maybe we'd be able to retain teachers, but easier and easier out. That uh, obvious, um, obvious uh, uh, circumstance. Teaching is really hard. Um, it should be hard. You know, think about taking care of one kid. Now think about taking care of two kids. Now think about taking care of 35 sixth graders. Oh, and by the way, teach them uh, how to divide fractions using visual models. Um, it's... It should be hard and teachers who love the profession, they love the relationships they have with their students. They, they love trying to solve problems on a daily basis. And part of that is delivering challenging curriculum is trying to teach hard concepts to, to students in a way that makes sense to them in a way that they can retain that information and develop some knowledge and glean something about the world. Um, but uh, the idea that we can just lower the bar and expect that that's gonna solve our problems is, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, ludicrous. And I mean, I think it, it alludes to um, that idea of status, standing, and prestige um, is that it really sort of removes the idea of teaching as a profession. Well, you also brought up an issue, and this gets back to your earlier question about how is teaching different than other lines of work and professions. And it's, it's a very unique combination. So you're not dealing with one customer or client, quote unquote, like say a psychologist or a doctor, you're dealing with a group. You're not dealing with adults, you're dealing with um, younger folks who by definition are not yet fully socialized, okay? You're sometimes dealing with customers, quote unquote, that don't wanna be there. I mean, if you're a doctor or a psychologist and the patient doesn't wanna be there, you can say, all right, See you later. Teachers can't do that. In most cases, teachers don't even have the authority to send a kid out of their classroom for that 
for that class period. So it's actually unusual. It's an unusual and difficult set of circumstances. You're, you're working with groups. You're working with, um, by definition, not yet socialized, not yet adult, and sometimes misbehaving youngsters. You're dealing with some who don't want to be there, and yet, and you may not even want to teach them, but you're both required to. Uh, the term used is sort of a dual captivity. Mm. And then finally, the work you want them to do, it's not like a supervisor in an office or a plant where you say, this is your job, do it, and I'm going to see, you know, whether you did it properly. You're trying to, you're not, you're trying to get them to grow. It's an internal process. By definition, it requires their cooperation and motivation. You can't force them. Now, you could say, listen, if you're a supervisor in an office and you have 10 people underneath you, someone might say, well, you can't force them either. Well, you could dock their pay or you could fire them. But you can't dock the pay of the students. I guess you could give them a lower grade. You can't really fire them. And so it's actually an unusual and unique combination of job characteristics that make it very, very challenging. You need to motivate these youngsters who may not want to or be willing to be motivated to do stuff to improve, to make their brain cells uh, grow. And you got to do this in groups. You can't focus on an individual and you got to do it in, in set time patterns. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult job. It's much more difficult than being a professor. Now we <laughs> work with groups too, and I'm not belittling being a professor, but my job as a high school teacher was a much more difficult and challenging and didn't have the rewards there of being a professor. I'll, I'll ever have a job as challenging as the job I had trying to teach sixth grade math. And I appreciate, I appreciate that comment uh, of the complexity too, because all throughout today's conversation, as you're responding, in my mind, I'm thinking, ooh, that's an interesting thread. We could talk for a couple hours about that. Oh, that's an interesting thread. Like how much autonomy? This is something I think about so often because um, my wife teaches at a, a, an independent school um, and there is a ton of autonomy uh, about what they teach from grade level to grade level, but I find it problematic in some ways because the way that something's taught in first grade may be very different from the way that something's taught in second grade. So in some ways you're sort of speaking a different language um, and as students, you're trying to translate that from one year to the next. Uh, so that's, you know, that's problematic, but at the same time, uh, I know that they probably would be frustrated in some ways if they were told you need to teach this, you know? Um, and there's a concept street level bureaucrats um, that I yes. uh, am a big fan of. Um, yes. I think by, was it Holstetler and Lipsky? Uh, Lipsky, yeah, Ooh. I think that's right. Yeah, um, Michael Lipsky, that's a classic book. And um, well, you're right. And, you know, the third way is a profession. So professionals have professional autonomy, but there's limits to it. If you're the physician, when you do an appendectomy, you just don't do it any which way you want. Oh, no, no, mm -hmm. best practices. But the mm -hmm. practices weren't imposed by, you know, some bureaucrat in the school district office. No, the profession has decided this collectively. So that's a case where the autonomy is restricted, not by a boss, but by the profession. So I guess the analog would be your wife got together with other teachers in the schools and they figured out, let's have some consistency in the curriculum. But instead of coming down from the state capitol, let's figure it out what works best for our kids so that, you know, when they finish second grade and they come into my third grade classroom, you know, there's not a gap there. Like, let's, let's make this coherent. Yeah. So one of the issues is reduction of autonomy. Another issue is who makes the decisions? Yeah, and one of the things, as I think back to my time in the classroom, one of the things that I think I enjoyed the most, and it's why I'm interested, why I wanted to go back and get my doctorate and potentially do research is I just love experimenting and trying new things, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work. And that's all part of the decision-making process. Um, yes. And I think that the decisions around, you use that term, best practices. I'm not sure that the people who are making uh, those choices around what should be used truly 
uh, have the skills or expertise to uh, to make those decisions, to understand what those best practices actually are. And I have that interesting perspective being on the corporate side of uh, being um, being part of or selling things. And in my experience, district administrators and, and school administrators, they don't ask the right questions about uh, the things that they're they're purchasing, and it's no no fault of their own. Um, I'm not trying to throw throw shade on them, but uh, yeah, I think uh, that's that's also that's also problematic. Well, yeah, who decides the best practices? And of course, this gets back to the lack of being a profession. That quite often these curricula, teachers have no input into them. Yeah, you know, they, might, they might be designed by some professor who's never taught elementary or high school. Now, I'm not trying to denigrate professors, but. <laughs> well, uh, and I mean, I think it's even more problematic um, when you have, uh, when we, if you want to talk about turnover, constant turnover of curriculum. Um, so you're going to teach this for a couple of years. Oh, I finally got the hang of it. Now we're going to teach this for a couple of years. Um, and for me, you know, I've always been, uh, I've always sort of stood the line on, uh, I, I'm not a fan of that term of best practices. I'd rather you do something that maybe isn't a quote unquote best practice and just lean into it and do it great than uh, take a best practice and implement it sort of half-heartedly. Um, but um, yeah. maybe yeah. I'm in the, in the minority there. So if we can close just on um, how you feel like your research on teacher turnover pre-COVID helps you understand the current state of the teaching profession. What's, uh, what's the same about uh, what we're experiencing now and what's, what's different? Well, much of my research was to pay attention to turnover, take it seriously in its, in its causes and costs and consequences, that it's really the big thing behind shortages. So, you know, I, I get a call every week from a reporter who's doing a story about, you know, the looming teacher shortages. And so turnovers- It's not just me? Not just you. <laughs> and so turnover is very relevant. Uh, and you just, you started out with the anecdote. I mean, you know, your, your, your child's teachers are leaving mid-year. I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is not going to be good for your child's year. There's going to be a gap. There's going to be some difficulties. And so, you know, the research shows that a lot of it is these job conditions. And what I would say is they're, more pertinent than ever. I mean, think of it. During this COVID, to what extent have teachers been, so there's all these problems confronting the schools and there's chaos and no one knows the answers. And one question I'd have is to what extent have teachers been asked to get into these discussions and figure out, okay, how do we handle this folks? What's the best way to do this? We've been doing it for six months. We've been doing it for a year now, but at this point we've been doing it for a couple of years and it hasn't been working well. And, you know, get their input into the decision-making deal with this crisis. What's, they're on the ground. They know to what extent remote teaching does or doesn't work or which types of remote teaching do or don't work. So instead of having an outside expert, having them part of the decision-making. And that's right out of the research. And so what I'd say is the findings in the research are more pertinent than ever. That we're most likely gonna have shortages driven by turnover. In turn, those are driven by the job conditions, the job situation, the stresses, the strains. And your interesting point is this might not just be low income urban disadvantage. No, this might be across the board. You know, that these stresses in COVID and, you know, trying to, you know, putting youngsters in front of a screen for a number of hours and trying to keep them engaged. I mean, one question I have is, how do people do that? That is really challenging. It's challenging at a higher ed level where our students are paying a fortune. You know, I, I'm just assuming that the last couple of years have been very, very difficult for K through 12 teachers? Very difficult. My So last year, my daughter had kindergarten and uh, she'd come into my office and say, I don't wanna go to my next class, I'm tired of Zoom. And I would say, you know what? I am tired of Zoom too. So you do your thing in your room. Don't worry about going to your class. Um, I hear you. 
Uh, And I think that, you know, engaging teachers in a conversation around trying to find some solutions, trying to create workplaces that can support the work that they do, that uh, make them want to be there. There is value just in having that conversation. They might not come up with the best solutions. Their solutions might not work, but what I what I can say is that uh, their solutions probably aren't going to be any worse than the solutions that admin uh, provide to them. And again, just having the conversation, um, hearing them, not just saying that you hear them, but actually hearing them, listening to them. Um, and, you know, we could have hour long conversation about the structural challenges. Just do we have an hour to have that conversation? Well, uh, that's another yes. Another conversation. Um, well, and then what do we do with that information? Yeah. Gets back to the organization, the way it's set up. Yeah. There yeah. isn't time allocated for that. It was a top-down model. We don't need to set aside time for any kind of collegial decision-making like the law firm would have, or like we have in academia. And by the way, I'd be the first to say faculty meetings now. You know, democracy, one of the costs is there's long, contentious meetings. I mean, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, but it out and coming to some vote and some consensus so no the way schools were set up there you know no time was allocated for that and we had this model that basically was borrowed from henry ford's assembly line i mean that quite explicitly you know back in 1900 he knows how to do it he's a genius he puts out a good product for less money let's let's partake of that expertise let's make an excellent school system uh at the lowest price and let's use this model of production. And, and that kind of terminology was used, technology, production, custom, yeah. raw yeah. materials. Yeah. And the catch is it's kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I, if I started uh, my own school, I would hope that somebody would come into that space and say, this doesn't look like a school. And uh, I feel like that would be, uh, that would be a great, Great compliment. Um, there's a movie, I think it's from either the late 90s or maybe 2000s called Accepted. And uh, basically a terrible movie, but it's about a bunch of college students who don't get into college. And so a bunch of high school students, they don't get into college. So they form their own uh, college that obviously isn't accredited, uh, but um, fascinating, I think, exploration of what that might look like. We've talked about teachers. I personally, teachers creating uh, my own school, but students also creating their own school and having more say in uh, in the curriculum and what what that would look like. Um, but uh, anybody who's interested in in watching a, a terrible and probably highly offensive movie from the two thousands, <laughs> accepted is uh, is a good one. Um, well, I'm going to jot it down. <laughs> Maybe it's on Netflix. I don't know. It might be. It might be. It was. Uh, I don't know if it was straight to DVD uh, or maybe it was VHS back then. Um, but uh, Dr. Ingersoll, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you taking a little bit more time that I had allocated. This was a, a great conversation, and um, I appreciate the work that you have done. I'm eager to uh, see uh, the the work that comes out of uh, the current situation that we're in, and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. 